It's Monday, November 4th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. We are one year out from the 2020 election, and the country is more divided than ever. President Donald Trump is facing an impeachment process, and Democrats still have not chosen a candidate to take him on. While one year will fly by overall, it is an eon in politics, and anything can still happen. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for some poll numbers and what to expect this next year. Next, there's a small town called Green Bank in West Virginia, where Wi-Fi is illegal. It's home to the Green Bank Observatory, a crucial facility in the field of radio astronomy. The observatory detects signals from space that are so faint that any radio interference can throw off readings. Therefore, any radio frequency interference that could corrupt their research has been deemed illegal. Matt Blitz, reporter at Popular Mechanics, joins us for how this town operates in 2019. Finally, there has been a decline in religion in the country happening for some time now. But two new surveys released recently show that millennials are skipping church and not going back. In 2019, two-thirds attended services a few times a year, and four in ten said they seldom or never go. Christine Emba, opinion columnist for The Washington Post, joins us for why this may be happening. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Our poll numbers are great. We're doing very well in the polls. And by the way, not that it's very important because you got elected, you got elected. But the impeachment polls have been very, very strong, and especially in the swing states. I think you see that. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me again. We are one year out from the 2020 election, and we are more divided than ever in the, than ever in this country. And there's a lot of uncertainty still with how this next year is going to play out. We have the big impeachment thing happening. We still don't have a Democratic nominee. There's a lot of unknowns going around right now. That's right. We are one year from Election Day, which means basically an eon in political time. (laughs) Lots can happen between now and then. And as you mentioned, we know some things are going to happen. We're going to eventually see the Democrats pick their nominee. We are going to see this impeachment process continue to move forward. And we just don't know the hundred million other things that are going to happen in the next year that are going to play even if little tiny factors, factors in the way that people vote. We had a ton of polls come out also, some polling from the AP, Washington Post, ABC, all sorts of people put out different things. One that was interesting, this is some polling that was conducted by Gallup, shows that 86% of Republicans have approved of the president over the course of his time in office, and no less than 79% had approved in any individual poll. So the president remains wildly popular on the Republican side, and it's like the complete opposite on the Democratic side. I think 7% of Democrats approve on average. When you look at approval numbers, this is not terribly surprising. I think a lot of folks thought that the Never Trump movement or Republican unhappiness with Trump was going to result in in low approval numbers, but we, we don't see that. And we see equally low numbers among Democrats approving of him, as has been from the beginning. Now, what we don't know is people who would have left those parties. Are there Democrats who liked Trump so much they became Republicans? And are there Republicans who dislike Trump so much they became either Democrats or independents? That's impossible to measure. And we see in polls, it's about how people identify themselves. So they, they aren't asked to show their voter registration. Most of the time, they're asked what party they're in and people answer 
how they feel. So we aren't surprised to see anyone that would self-describe as a Republican at this time, most of them liking the president. And it seems for the president's campaign, rather than trying to persuade independents or moderate Democrats, they're going full bore on their base and also maybe uh, identifying Trump supporters who didn't come out in 2016 and trying to mobilize them. That's right. I know from talking with the Trump administration that they think that the biggest way to grow their support, which is going to be absolutely necessary if he's going to win re-election in 2020, isn't to convince someone who voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016 to now vote for Donald Trump, but to convince people that would naturally like the president, that likes the president in 2016, that thought, oh, he's never going to win or it doesn't matter, or for whatever reason, just didn't bother to vote in 2016 to now show up in 2020. They're looking at that base still. The kind of people who like Trump, who want to hear him talk about a wall and immigration, who aren't bothered by uh, his sort of uh, aggressive or blunt nature, and that think that what he's doing is helping America. But as you mentioned, one year is a ton of time, but we are going through this impeachment process right now. And if the president is impeached in the House, maybe acquitted in the Senate, he could be the first president impeached and facing reelection and could possibly win there, too. This is true. You know, when I talk to Democrats, there's a lot of concern that now that they're moving forward with an impeachment process, that they won't have a hard time getting the votes they need to pass an impeachment resolution through the House. And and for those listeners who aren't super familiar with the congressional procedure, that would mean the president was impeached once the House voted to approve articles of impeachment. But the real tricky part is what happens in the Republican-controlled Senate. And there, they would hold a trial and they would vote to either keep him in office or remove him. And some Democrats are concerned that if they vote to keep him in office, that Trump will say he's exonerated and he did nothing wrong. And that will boost his reelection chances next year. Let's move on to some uh, Democrat 2020 stuff from an AP poll. They said that Democrats are more likely than Republicans to feel anxious and frustrated with either whatever's going on with the process. I know there's been concern about the candidates themselves and other polling shows that It's still a big three-way race between Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders, with Pete Buttigieg kind of coming up in fourth place right now. I would contend it's probably a six, seven, maybe even 10 person race. Don't count anyone out who's still making debates. They still have the ability to break through. But I think you're right. We see this top tier three candidates, Biden, Warren and Sanders, really emerging as the ones to beat. Voters can change their minds. And we know in places like Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, which will vote first, that those voters are are more inclined to change their mind. And when they start changing their minds, sometimes we see a cascading effect across the country. So we do see polls with people uncertain. But I would caution you, Oscar, on one front, which is that it's normal that voters start to get really uncomfortable in the middle of a primary. It's the sort of nastiest part of this whole process. And we do normally see approval numbers of candidates really get at the bottom right in the thick of a primary process. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Wi-Fi itself is technically not illegal. The interference it causes is. So it's like a very small distinction. You can have Wi-Fi, but if it's not interfering with the telescope, it's not illegal. Right. However, basically all Wi-Fi does. Joining us now is Matt Blitz, reporter at Popular Mechanics. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thanks for having me, Oscar. We're going to be talking about the town of Green Bank, West Virginia, 
which is home to the Green Bank Observatory, which does a lot of stuff to understand our universe. They have some telescopes there. They do a lot of stuff in the field of radio astronomy. And Mm -hmm. this is also a town where Wi-Fi is illegal. I do not know if I could live in a place like this, Uh, but it is a pretty small town. But tell us about this place, Matt. Well, I have to put a little bit of caveat on there. Wi-Fi itself is technically not illegal. The interference it causes is. So it's like a very small distinction. You can have Wi-Fi, but if it's not interfering with the telescope, it's not illegal. Right. However, basically all Wi-Fi does <laughs> if you have it on. <laughs> so therefore, what it causes is illegal. So tell us about Green um, Bank and why this observatory is so right. important and then why they had to kind of set these laws in place for this interference. So Green Bank Observatory is home to the world's most sensitive radio telescope. Of course, there's other radio telescopes across the world, one in China, one in Puerto Rico. But this one has been around since the 1950s, in mid-1950s. And they do tons of really important research. One of their slogans or log lines is, the universe is calling to us, so we better listen. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're listening to the universe. They're finding everything from gravitational waves, massive neutron stars, Pulsars, and they're also, they've been doing this since the 1950s, actually early 1960s. They're listening for extraterrestrial intelligence, SETI research. And so they are listening, if there's ever a signal coming down from some sort of intelligent life out there, potentially the telescope, the Green Bank Observatory will be the first to hear it. And for this observatory to operate normally, as you said, it's so sensitive, there had to have been a lot of compromises made. So anything that's man-made radio frequencies can completely overwhelm these signals that they're trying to get from space. Back in the 50s and the 60s, they passed a bunch of laws to kind of establish radio quiet zones. They passed the radio quiet zone, which is about 13,000 acres that goes all the way up to about Charlottesville and all the way down in other parts of West Virginia. And then closer to Green Bay Observatory, is about a 10-mile radius that's even stricter laws. But when they passed these laws, first in 1956 and 1958, a lot different time than we are in 2019, right? <laughs> uh, the things that will tend to interfere are, are radio stations, television signals, uh, ham radios, people's private ham radios. But now in 2019, there's a lot more that can interfere with it, from Wi-Fi to cell service to Bluetooth. And actually, Bluetooth is the one thing that is really, really, really hard to regulate at this point because many appliances we have in our houses have Bluetooth at this point. Bluetooth from refrigerators to dehumidifiers, they just have them installed, pre-installed. That's a real issue for the observatory and this radio telescope. And that's the big question, really. Is it even possible (laughs) to keep any of this technology out of this remote town there. I think in the article, there's a person who's kind of specifically assigned to looking out for these uh, radio interference waves. And I think they pinpointed one and it was causing a problem. And it was the Bluetooth to a dehumidifier, as you mentioned. So it's like, how in the hell are you ever going to really realize that this one dehumidifier is causing all that problem? That's the issue. I mean, he can detect hotspots, but really trying to pinpoint what exactly is causing the interference. By the way, RFI is actually the acronym, so radio frequency interference. It actually shows up on the data that they collect. So if they point the telescope up into the sky, they're doing a project being looking for a pulsar, they can get little blips, which is radio frequency interference. And those little blips are coming from surrounding areas. Um, Like I said, be Wi-Fi signal, Bluetooth, cell, whatever. And yeah, so like these appliances that have Bluetooth, it's really, really hard. And so the observatory, instead of trying to regulate or simply not have it in the town, they realize that's a really a near impossibility at this point. So they're trying to find other ways to basically strip the human-made signals from what they're getting from the universe. And they're working on that, trying to take that data out. 
what is life like there? I know there's a, it's a small town, obviously, but there's a general store. I know there's a school that's there that they do have right. internet, but it's through right. ethernet cables and hardlined. So what is life like in this little town there? It's rural. I live in Arlington, Virginia, so going three or four hours west, so it's a pretty typical rural town, except for the fact that there's no cell service and no <laughs> Wi-Fi. And so for these students who go to school, they have computer labs, they're able to use the internet, but I did speak to the principal and one of their teachers, and they said nearly all the kids at home have Wi-Fi. It's because, frankly, there's very little way for the observatory to, A, detect it, and B, they don't have any um, way to enforce it. I live in Los Angeles right now. I'm constantly surrounded sure. by machines all the time. The only thing I could think of was, like, I cannot operate in a town like this. So there's actually folks who move to Green Bank because it does not have all this electromagnetic interference or radiation. It's interesting in the sense that there is no place, probably in America and probably in the world, where you can totally avoid the use of Bluetooth, the use of Wi-Fi, be it either for science reasons or for your own health. Matt Blitz, reporter at Popular Mechanics, thank you very much for joining us. Sure, thank you for having me. Americans are leaving religion in a dramatic way, especially Christianity, and that the number of Americans who are leaving the faith and not coming back ever is especially pronounced among the millennial generation. Joining us now is Christine Emba, opinion columnist for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Christine. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about millennials skipping church and not really going back. We've seen a lot of stories and studies of the decline of either religion or religious beliefs in the country. There's two new surveys released this month, kind of adding a little more fuel to that. And basically, it's not just saying that religion or these beliefs are declining. People are stopped going to church, stop going to church and really just aren't going back ever. Christine, tell us a little bit about this. So I wrote a column last week, and it did talk about exactly these two surveys. A time-use survey that showed that millennials spend less time than those older generations involved in civic activities or in religious activities. And then another survey by the Pew Research Center, which is part of a series of surveys that they've done tracking religious life in America, that shows that Americans are leaving religion in a dramatic way, especially Christianity, and that the number of Americans who are leaving the faith and not coming back ever, not just taking a break on going to church or lowering their attendance, but simply declining to identify themselves as religious in any way, is especially pronounced among the millennial generation, far and away by an extreme percentage. In some of the Pew Research studies, it's the increase of the nuns, people identifying as nuns, so nothing, no religious affiliation at all. And you wrote about it in your column also. There is this kind of notion that a lot of times people would leave because, uh, especially millennials in the prime working ages, you know, early 20s to mid-30s, they got a lot of stuff on their plate. They're starting families. They're doing all sorts of things in work and just so much time pressures on them. The conventional thought is once things calm down, once they mature, once they get a little older— they usually go back to these things. They'll start going back to church. But that's not really happening. There used to be this expectation of a life cycle effect. You kind of assume that kids go to church because often they're taken by their parents. You expect that teenagers and people in their 20s are going to rebel a little bit, maybe question whether they're really of this faith. But then there's the expectation that, yes, as their lives settle down, they have their own kids and look for somewhere to give those children moral formation. They will return to the religion of their parents. 
and their youth and their attendance and their allegiance will recover. But yeah, as we're seeing in these surveys, that's not the case. The Pew survey showed a drop in attendance, definitely. But I think more worryingly for churches and those who believe that they're important, it was this affiliation drop that was the biggest. Over the past 10 years, the percentage point change in millennials who identify as Christian is negative 16%. Wow. Then the number who don't identify as anything, identifying as the nuns, as you mentioned, is plus 13. So they're not just skipping church for a few years. They are just saying, I am not religious. We did a story on the podcast a few months ago about how a lot of millennials are turning to more spiritual practices, so tarot, astrology, crystals, things like that. Is that where the majority of people are going, or are they just not doing anything at all? I've actually written about this in the past. I had a column actually around last Halloween, I think, entitled Enter the Witch, about how a kind of surprising number of millennials and young people had left organized religion. But yes, had gotten into tarot, into crystals, or even you know into literally witchcraft. They identified as uh, practitioners of witchcraft. My theory is, and this has been backed up by a number of studies too, is that millennials and young people may be leaving organized religion, but all of us inside, I think, still long for transcendence and want to understand the world as kind of a larger place with a spiritual aspect. So yeah, they're taking up spiritual practices. They may say they're not religious, but there's still an understanding of something larger than ourselves, and millennials still seek to tap into it. And that leads to another interesting notion that you were writing about in your article. And you said some of these spiritual practices can be very individualistic. But when we stop going to church and things like that, you kind of lose a sense of community almost. You wrote about how you worry about this loss of community. So there are other studies that have been done recently that note that regular church attendance is linked to longer and healthier lives. And actually, many of these studies have found this kind of specific quirk. What's important is not necessarily identifying as religious, but actually going to church every week or every two weeks, like being a regular person there. And the hypothesis is that this is linked to community support. So you have people around you who are interested in you and are looking out for your well-being. Often in a religious context, there are sort of moral and lifestyle aims that you're expecting to live up to, usually positive ones. So there's some kind of outside peer pressure for you to say, stop drinking, someone who will help you get a job if you lose yours, people who are looking out for each other, and also just people who are present in your lives because loneliness is a killer. And it's something that's hugely on the rise in younger generations. And traditionally, churches and religious organizations have been kind of a center of communal life for an individual, someplace that you knew you could go to get this support and be around people. And if millennials are just cutting this factor out of their lives entirely, we don't really have as concrete and established structure for community otherwise that they can tap into. So they may be losing a lot of that connection. And that is not really good for us overall. Christine Emba, opinion columnist for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this 
was your daily dive. 